Well, guys, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me by turning to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, chapter 4. This morning, we are studying verses 10 to 20. And our title for this morning's message is Content in Christ. Seven days ago now, one of the wealthiest and most athletic players in the NBA posted a message on social media that garnered a lot of, of attention. It was a simple comment, but obviously relatable because of the public reaction that it received. Ja Morant, the star point guard for the Memphis Grizzlies, posted this. It's a different story for me. It seems I got everything I ever dreamed, but I can't find no peace. Hmm. How about you, friend? Do you have peace? Perhaps you can't say, as Ja Morant said, that You have everything that you ever wanted. But let's just assume that we have most of what we need in life. Do you have peace in your soul? Are you content? Or are you restless and unhappy with your circumstances in life? Well, as the Apostle Paul puts his finishing touches on this letter to the Christians in Philippi... He has one more lesson to teach them so that their days in Jesus remain joyful. Letter of joy to the Christians in Philippi. He wants one more lesson to be sent across to them so that their life in Jesus remains joyful. Paul knows that the Christian has everything that they need to live the rest of their lives joyful in Jesus precisely because they have Jesus. But he also knows that just because we have everything that we need in Jesus doesn't mean that we believe that. So he takes the time to teach us how to be content in Christ. In this text, he points to Christ and he says to us, To sustain a life of joy in Jesus, we have to learn to live content in all circumstances. Have you discovered the rare jewel of Christian contentment? Well, let's turn our attention now to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message. And that is the reading of God's holy, infallible authoritative word. Philippians 4, starting in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's go in prayer to the Lord and just ask for his help as we seek to understand and apply his word. Lord, we love you and we love your word and we we just heard your word read aloud and these are some life-changing verses. But Lord, apart from the Spirit, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we just ask you, please open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first point this morning is peace comes through a person, not possessions or poverty. Verses 10 to 14. Do you have a friend or a family member in your life Who seems to give you a hard time every time that you miss their phone call? The next time that you talk to them, they might say something like, kind of in a passive-aggressive voice and tone, I'm glad you finally called me back. Well, as we read verse 10, we could make the mistake of assuming that that's what Paul's doing here when he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. At just a, a glance of reading, it sounds like the Apostle Paul has a little dose of passive-aggressive pill, doesn't it? But actually, he's communicating something different, something more meaningful. Paul is rejoicing in verse 10. He's rejoicing in the Lord as a result of this church's revived concern for him because it signifies their partnership in the gospel. It signifies a rekindling of friendship. Now, if you remember, Paul started this church. He planted this church some. Ten years before the occasion of writing this letter to them. And this church had always been a strong prayer and financial partner for the Apostle Paul as he took the gospel to the unreached parts of the world. But as he says in verse 10, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Which means that for some undisclosed reason, the church was unable to partner with Paul for a considerable amount of time but when they heard that he was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel they became concerned for his well-being concerned for his health and so they sent a messenger Epaphroditus on an 800 mile six week journey one way to bring him gifts 
and to minister to his needs. And Paul sees the sending of this messenger Epaphroditus as a symbol, a meaningful symbol, which means the revival of a partnership in the gospel, a revival of of missionary and sending church, a renewal. This meant so much to Paul. It meant the rekindling of a friendship. So he's telling them here just how thankful he is for that and how thankful he is for them. But he realizes when he says thank you to them for these things, he realizes they they might misunderstand his motives behind his heart of gratitude. So he tells them in verse 11, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me ask you a question. What does contentment mean? I think we could all agree that we might know what it feels like to experience contentment. And we know what it feels like to experience discontentment. But what does it mean? Well, Jeremiah Burroughs, an old Puritan pastor, provides us with a really helpful definition here. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Man, what a condition. Paul tells us in this text that this sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit must be learned. It's something that has to be learned. So, my Christian friend, have you learned Christian contentment yet? Well, let me be honest with you. I don't think that I have received a master's degree in this education from the Lord, but I think that I might have graduated kindergarten a few years ago. Let me tell you a story of the Lord learning me contentment. Sarah and I were preparing to move to northwest Arkansas to help start the church plant in 2017. And one of our friends at, the, at our sending church in Louisville, one of the pastor's wives, told me that she had an impression from the Lord for me. She said that while she was praying for me, the Lord showed her a picture of an unbroken horse being bridled. And being someone who loves horses herself, she went on to offer an interpretation of that picture. She said, Matt, I believe that in this next season, the Lord is going to bridle you. She went on to tell me about how this bridling process for an unbroken horse causes the animal to buck and to bronk until finally it settles into the harness. But the bridle process and the bridling is ultimately good for the horse because without a bridle, the horse cannot be led by its master. Well, friends, she was right. She was right about what I would experience. Throughout the next several years, as I navigated seasons of personal disappointment, serious setbacks in the pursuit of a calling into the ministry, financial hardship, and the concern of my mother's stage four cancer diagnosis, 
The Lord enrolled me in classes in contentment in Christ. Now make no mistake, I had the right confession. To live is Christ and to die is gain. But I lacked the learned lessons of experience. And through this season, he taught me to joyfully trust in him, no matter the circumstances. Now, Paul goes on to offer some more really helpful information about an education in contentment. First, he says in verse 12, I know how to be brought low. You know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, you know that this man knew what low looked like. Few, few Christians throughout the Christian faith have been brought lower than the Apostle Paul. Here's his biography. Listen in to the biography of the Apostle Paul to see how low the Lord taught him to be. He says this in 1 Corinthians 4.11. To this present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. In 2 Corinthians 11.25 he tells us more about his humbling circumstances in life. He says this, three times I was beaten with prods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was drift, adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. You see, friends, God enrolled the Apostle Paul into Ph.D. level classes on being brought low. And he taught Paul in these seasons how to be joyfully content in Christ while enduring hard circumstances in life. I think we have this picture of the Apostle Paul when we're reading Philippians and you hear me say, oh, he's in, Ro he's in a Roman prison. And if you, if you think about a Roman prison, don't think about an American prison where there's three meals a day and TV time and, and yard time with basketball hoops. No, 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 no. Prison time in Rome would have probably been more of a picture of a dark cell with maybe some standing water at times, limited access to food. And when you did have food, it certainly wasn't tasteful food. Maybe not even a blanket to cover yourself up so you develop things like pneumonia. They're not worried about taking care of their prisoners in Rome. And here, while in this disgusting circumstance, he says 16 times in Philippians to be joyful. And we think, I think we just assume like, that Paul was just that way as a result of natural behavior or natural inclinations of personality. But that's not the case. 
That's not the case for any of us either. If you ever meet a content Christian, regardless of their circumstances, it's not just a naturally gifted thing. It's something that must be learned. And here's the bad news for you, friend. It's not learned in the plush conditions. It's, it's learned in the impoverished ones. God enrolled Paul into PhD level classes in being brought low. And I, and I made an edit in the message just this morning because I thought I had and taught him to be content. And I thought, no, that's not right. You can't, you can't. And I thought, man, I've, I've missed it. It's not just taught him to be content. The entire letter has taught him to be joyfully content. That's totally different frame of being, a state of mind. You can be content and sort of apathetic or complacent. But Paul is joyfully content. He settled into the bridal. He settled into the bridal that his master, the Lord Jesus, has put on him. Now listen, friends, though, you and I will never, likely never experience this degree of suffering that Paul experienced. We all have times throughout our lives where we are brought low. And the question we have to answer is this. Have I learned to have that sweet Inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit that is contentment? Or am I miserable in humbling circumstances? But listen, this is good news. Not all of life is spent in low conditions. As Sarah was saying even this morning, not all of life is spent in low conditions. Sometimes we emerge and we stand atop of mountains. And like John Morant, we, it appears that we have everything that we ever wanted in life. But if we don't have Christ, and if we haven't learned the secret of contentment in Christ, the sad reality is that this sweet peace that God intends for us to experience in mountaintop seasons will elude us. They will pass us by. We can be on top of the world, have everything we ever wanted. And if we don't know the secret of contentment in Christ, it will pass us by like a vest, like, 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 like a vapor, like a mist. So Paul says at the end of verse 12, I know how to abound. Did you expect him to say that? If you're reading this for the first time, would you have expected him to say, I know how to abound? Don't most of us only think about contentment when we are in seasons of want? I mean, honestly. When have you ever said to yourself or to your accountability partner in life in seasons of, of abundance, I just got to learn to be content. But Paul tells us here that we must learn how to handle success. Or as he says it, we must learn how to abound. 
The reason is because neither poverty nor possessions is able to sustain our joy. It's neither the poverty gospel or the prosperity gospel that promises us peace with God. Only Christ and His substitutionary death on our behalf is how we can receive peace from God and peace with God. So he says this, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. The secret. Well, what a phrase. The secret, yes. Indeed, Paul says, there is a secret to Christian contentment. So let me ask you, friends. Do you like secrets? My little girl loves to tell secrets. And my favorite secret that she loves to tell is when she says this. She says, Daddy, come here and let me tell you a secret. And as I lean in, just totally acting like I have no idea what she's going to say to me, I lean in close and she whispers in my ear, the Easter Bunny is coming to town. (laughs) Well, praise God, friends, that Paul tells us in this text to come in close because there is a secret that he is willing to share. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This secret should really cause us to throw our hands up in celebration. Because it's not a secret that needs to be solved. It's not a secret that needs decoding. It's not a secret that leads us to endless searching. It's a secret that's plain and simple. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's that's the secret, friends. That's the lesson that, that must be learned In the school of Christ's contentment. But the question remains. Have you learned this lesson, my Christian friend? We must learn to say with the Apostle Paul. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And simultaneously learn to say with Jesus from John 15, verse 5, apart from Christ, I can do nothing. This secret is simple for the Christian. If you want contentment in Christ, if you want sustained joy through every season and every circumstance, Do not look, and I'm preaching to myself like right now, do not look to your circumstances, do not look to yourself, but look by faith to the person of Jesus Christ. Here's here's how we could say it simply and hopefully memorably. Don't look without and don't look within Only look at him. Paul says in Ephesians 3.17, 
that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. That Christ dwells in our heart by faith. Which should, which should remind us that since we have Christ, we always have all that we need in life. Nevertheless, friends, we must learn the spiritual art of leaning into his strength alone to find contentment in any and every circumstance. At least to our second point this morning, having a little but giving a lot. Verses 14 to 20. Well, now that Paul has established the fact that he is thankful for their, for their giving because it is a sign of the rekindling of a partnership and the rekindling of a friendship as he seeks to take the gospel to the unreached parts of the world, he circles back around in verse 14 and he tells them, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And then in verses 15 and 16, he provides us with some history between him and this church. He says this, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, is that a major part of their DNA as a local church was to be a mission-sending and supporting local church. From the very beginning of their origins, from day one, they had a passion to see Christ known among the unreached. So they partnered with the Apostle Paul. They partnered with him financially. They partnered with him in prayer. Well, maybe, maybe they were supporting missions so sacrificially because they had deep pockets. Well, actually, no, they didn't in this church. And how do we know that they didn't? Well, listen to this. Paul tells us about the church finances in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. He says this, we want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia. That is this, at least this church in Philippi. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, listen, joy, Philippians, wow, seeing connections, and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And here, several years later, Paul is recounting this church's generosity. It's amazing. Friends, I'm so thankful that God has, in, in our young life, as a young church, that God has, has given us a similar DNA as he works to build and form and fashion this church to exactly what he wants us to be like and what he wants us to do. 
I'm so thankful that our church has a similar DNA to that of this church in Philippi. From the beginning, God has marked us as a sacrificial and generous church. From the very beginning. A church that has faith to give beyond their means. A church that has faith to give beyond our means. We've seen this time and again. In 2021, when, when I was working bivocationally and the church was having, members of this church were having conversations with me about what it would look like for me to go full time for the sake of the benefit of the church, for the sake of the benefit of my family and for the sake of my own health, um, what it would look like. And I was the one lacking faith while the church had so much faith. I remember coming to a membership meeting and saying, listen, we have three options. The first is I can try to raise support, which may, be, may not be right. Two, we, we can take a step in faith and I can come on full time. Or three, we can just continue the path that we're on right now and I'll just work bivocationally. But I don't know how long I can do that. And the church unanimously said, we know we don't have the funds for this because we'd already budgeted what it would look like we know we don't have the funds, but we have faith that God will provide the funds. And so we dove in, and he did. And the Lord did. We're planning to do the exact same thing with Zach going part-time in January. We did the exact same thing with our budget for this new fiscal year. As we're looking and evaluating it. We've looked at our finances, and we're thinking, we, we want to bring Zach on part-time. There's a massive need. It would, it would be strengthening for the church. It would be good for his family. And we want to give to missions. We, we feel the need to give to our denomination, which aids missions throughout the world, and we also want to partner with missionaries, and we don't have the money to do all these things, but we're going to do them, but we're going to do them, and so it was just a, a massive step of faith over and over again. That's what this church from the very beginning has been like, and I thank God for that. I thank God for that, that the DNA of our church has been a church that, that takes God at his word. That leans on him, that trusts him, that waits upon him, that, that's willing to risk, to be risky for the sake of the advance of the gospel and the building of his church. But let me tell you this. At the exact same time that I'm thankful, I'm begging God for the grace to give more. I'm truly begging God for the grace to give more. I want to let you in behind the scenes to... Some of my private prayers for our church for just a moment. A few weeks ago, we received two, me two emails from Christians in need. The first was from a missionary couple that we support in Ethiopia. And the second was from a lead pastor of a sovereign grace church in Ukraine, whose church is caring for hundreds in their war-torn country. As I read these emails, my eyes filled with tears because I knew that we couldn't help any more than we currently were. We're already giving in faith. We're already in a Philippians type way, giving beyond our means. 
So this is what I did. This is what, this is what that early morning prayer looked like with tears in my eyes. I prayed and asked God for two things. First, I asked Him to please, and this includes you, includes us as a body. I asked Him to please make us worthy to handle the kind of cash where we can write huge checks. Where there's a need in the Ukraine for 20 grand to support war-torn efforts that we say, here you go, and our church sends. We say, we hear the Pinnells in Ethiopia in need as they're starting a pastor's college and they need $12,000 that we can say, here, $12,000. Because that's what I want our DNA to be. Maybe one day we'll have our own building, but listen... Listen, here's the vision for the church. It's not to build a bunch of stuff. That's fine. If that's fine, other churches have other DNA. I'm not knocking that. I'm not at all. Don't hear me doing that. It's not what I'm doing. But that's not what I want our DNA to be. I want, I want us to be, even if we're uncomfortable in a meeting space, but that our pockets are deep with cash, that's what I want. Well, Matt, we, we have a hundred grand in the bank. Why aren't we building another building? Well, because there might be a need on the field. And we want to be able to write a check and send it. As people are advancing the gospel in unreached parts of the world. We want to be able to send sacrificially. So that's one way I pray. God, make us worthy. Make me worthy. Make us worthy. And this is the second way. Please show me if we have done anything that makes us unworthy to carry that kind of responsibility at this time. The DNA that this church had for sending and supporting missionaries is the same sacrificial DNA I want us to have as a local church. And as we transition to verse 17, we find that Paul provides us with a theology of giving, starting when he says in uh, in verse 17 this, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you've sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. There are three lessons that Paul wants us to learn here. The first is this. All Christians, all Christian giving has cash back rewards in heaven. When we swipe to give, we're not giving with a debit card. We're giving with a credit card. In other words, Paul's point in verse 17 is that while he is the recipient of the church's sacrificial giving, the Christian should expect to receive an eternal reward in heaven for their investment in the advancement of the gospel. 
God never loses sight of our giving. Secondly, all giving that stems from a heart of faith, Paul says in verse 18, is a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And what this means is that when Christians give financially, not from a heart to earn God's favor, but from a heart of faith that trusts in the finished work of Christ on the cross, this giving is pleasing to God. And then thirdly, to Christians and churches who have faith to give beyond their means. And thank God, I think we qualify for that. I think we are squarely there. Who have faith to give beyond their means. Paul says this really wonderful promise to us in verse 19. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You know what that gives us the freedom to do? That gives us the freedom to take great risk for the advance of the gospel. That gives us the freedom that while we take great risk, we may make mistakes in taking those great risks. And we can trust that God will teach us and correct us and, and provide wisdom because wisdom's necessary in all these things. But all the while, He will provide, He will supply for every one of our needs according to His bank account that has no shortage of commas. How about that? Hudson Taylor once said this. He said, be assured of this. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. So friends, as we close our time studying Philippians 4, 10 to 20, let me just ask you a question one more time. Are you content in Christ regardless of your circumstances? If I had the chance to have a conversation with John Morant from our opening illustration, it would be my objective to point his craving heart to the satisfying Savior. Just as Paul has pointed our hearts to Jesus this morning. His heart, like all of our hearts, has an inherent yearning to be restored to its maker. To be restored in fellowship with God. But because of our sin, as a result of our sin, our fellowship with God is broken, which causes us to seek peace and contentment in our circumstances. But God has done done something remarkable to save us from our terrible condition of sin. Our, our broken condition of broken fellowship with Him that just literally disrupts every aspect of our lives. This is what He did. He sent and sacrificed His Son on the cross 
so that we could be forgiven of all of our sins and restored to a right relationship with Him. And as a benefit of that restoration, experience the contentment in Him that we were designed to know. Augustine, I just thought of an Augustine quote that he said in the third century. He said, All of our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Him. In Christ and in Christ alone, our hearts discover true and lasting contentment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we Lord, we love you. And we thank you for just such a beautiful instruction from Philippians 4. Lord, just like, just, just as we thought Philippians couldn't get any better, there it does. I mean, it's just remarkable, Lord, how you've given us such beautiful instruction. I mean, it's real life application because our hearts have these deep cravings, deep, deep cravings. And then here you are telling us, listen to me, listen to me. I've revealed to you what you are to do with that craving. Don't stuff it with stuff. Trust Christ. Trust my son. Lord, that's remarkable and I thank you for that. I just want to ask you for the help to do that. Lord, we want to hold Paul's words that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We want to hold Jesus' words in John 15 that apart from Christ, I can do nothing. And so, God, here we are, sort of right there in the middle. And we're asking you, please do what only you can do in our lives. And that is to teach us to be Christians who are content in all and every circumstance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.